Okay, if everybody's here, ready, then we can continue. Ready? If somebody can close the door, I think that's the obvious sign. So, um, welcome again and welcome to the new um, editions. Um, I think the name was Lisa. And also welcome to Robert, back. You missed a great show. Uh, um, with the professor's consent, I am going to take five or ten more minutes uh, because an important question by Keith came up and I'd like to clarify the position here because Keith, you did ask a good question about the flatness of the yield curve or the interest rate, let's say, under a gold standard. I said it is reasonably flat. Now some of you doubt that because there would be a natural inclination to say well there is more risk to long term compared to short term. Now what is the difference? Well this is the difference. In fact under a gold standard, maybe not the old one as we have seen in Victorian times but hopefully under a future new gold standard it would be compulsory or very desirable to issue sinking fund protection. Now sinking fund protection is the reason or is, is in fact some kind of a little insurance policy against rates going up or down. And that would give you triple rating instead of just double A rating or whatever the credit rating agencies do. So what does the sinking fund manager do? If prices go above par, he will sell the bond. And if prices go below par, he would buy the bond. It would make sense for him. He will make an income on that. But of course, buying bonds and selling bonds means that you can control the interest rate, the yield. And that, if you make it, and on that condition of course, if you make it compulsory on all, on all long-term funds, especially if you want AAA rating, then you would get the a lot flatter interest rate. They would arbitrage the difference between whatever the bond price is in par by being prepared to sell in any reasonable or buying any reasonable quantity to pull the bond price up or down to par, basically? Yes. Now that would mean, that would imply that the sinking fund is, is not uh, a penny fund, you know, it's a large fund. Sorry? It also is fully funded. It is fully funded, yes. Uh, professor? It, it also could, and normally would, accelerate the retirement of the underlying debt. But that's 
what is understood from the beginning. Now also, while talking about the sinking fund and the uh, steadiness of the yield curve, point out an important consequence. Because one of the uh, <coughs> disadvantages of, well, I should say disadvantage, one of the dangers in the monetary system is that banks will borrow short <coughs> and land long. This is what we call illegitimate arbitrage. Why is it illegitimate? Well, if there is a yield curve, which we have now, typically, under the irredeemable currency system, then it means that shorter maturity commands lower and longer maturity commands higher interest. So the banks have an incentive to borrow short and lend long. And this is destabilizing. And that's why we call it illegitimate. And if there is any monetary reform, such as the return to the gold standard, then number one uh, job would be to outlaw illicit interest arbitrage. Why is it destabilizing? Could somebody explain why illicit or illegitimate interest arbitrage is destabilizing in the in the financial system. Could somebody explain this? I've written papers on this, so I'll let somebody else. Hmm? I've written papers on this. I'll let somebody else answer. Yes. Well, there are two reasons. One is it puts a, a, a pressure to invert the yield curve. It's going to push up short-term rates and push down long-term rates. And the other reason, there's no guarantee that the short-term debt can be rolled over. So either way, it's, um, it's a mismatch. To, it works and it works and it won't. There's no problem, so there's a problem, but then there's a problem. In, a, in other words, it's a wrong. mismatch of mismatch of maturities. This mismatch of maturities. This is one. You said two, there were yeah, two. Yeah. Well, the first one is that it tends to invert or reverse or invert the yield curve because there is a, a force created to push up short-term rates and a force created to push down long-term rates. Yeah. And the other one is. It's, it's not guaranteed that they can roll over short. You know what at, I mean? At so the same rate. Or at any rate. They may never... Or any rate, yeah. for that matter. 
that is that is the answer and I would like everybody to see that very clearly that it's unnatural so it's not that uh, we are just pedantic and but no it's very damaging it introduces a cyclical destabilization into the system so this is something which reinforces the business cycle. It makes the interest rate fluctuate and do damage. So if there is an incentive for the corporations or those who issue bonds to attach a sinking fund this is going to eliminate the incentive to do illicit interest arbitrage. So it's really beneficial. Now, about the history. Governments, as a rule, never attach the sinking fund. That's in the, under the gold standard. They said, oh, well, that's top security. There's nothing more secure than a government bond. So there's no need to introduce a sinking But maybe when everybody had confidence <laughs> in the governments, and under the gold standard, by and large, the governments had to behave. So it was justified. But corporations didn't have any pressure on them to issue sinking funds. But there was a, a spontaneous effort that if you wanted to consider a top not wanted to be considered a top-notch corporation with top much credit, then you would attach. And this was the case. You said it's fully funded. How, how, I mean, if you're selling a million dollars worth of bonds, how much money in the sinking fund is considered fully funded? Keith, that's a question for an actuary. Well, this is not a million dollars. It's a lot less than that, is the point. It would, no, it wouldn't be a million dollars. No, no, no. Oh. How much? Well, uh, it's something which you find out by uh, trial and error. Start with 10%, and if it keeps 10%, then you can reduce it, and so on. But uh, you know, the uh, you are you are paying interest as an issuer, model, right? So you have to keep some money by you for making the next. Payment on the next coupon. So, what we are really talking about is keeping a little more. Yes. And to find out how much more is a matter of uh, trial and error, I would say. But actuaries might develop a formula. I don't think this is a, a significant question. You see, okay, uh, if you are depleting uh, the uh, 
amount of money you have borrowed by issuing the bond too fast, then all it means is that you can borrow again issuing a new slate of bonds a little earlier. So there is no real problem about that uh, because the credit markets will be much more stable than the credit markets we have seen under the irredeemable currency. Yes. In fact, you will be able to, well, kind of roll over. Not, not roll over you, but when you have redeemed your debt a bit too fast, as the professor says, well then, uh, adjust it by issuing more, and probably at the same rate as well, so no damage done. Okay, let's go. Um, last question, and then we have to go on. Um, why, can I speak for a second, or are we going on? I'm just going to say that this is an indicator of stability of the system. The bigger the sinking fund has to be, that indicates the system is getting unstable, and that was the reason they stopped doing it, because it costs too much, and it's just too unstable to keep it under control. Yeah. Well, actually, if you'd like to continue this discussion on the sinking fund, I devoted a whole lecture to the, the title of the lecture is the yield curve stable, uh, constant, or increasing? And that would come up next week. So if we have a fuller discussion now on this question, we could just do it at the expense of this lecture coming up next time. Depending on you, I don't mind if you'd like to continue discussion on... Well, it's been in half an hour, so you... Oh, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. We'll, um, we continue with Chapter 7, the disequilibrium theory of uh, price formation. Well, you have that on... You have that in the handout. Unfortunately, that's the last chapter which I could include, but it, there it is, so I hope it will help you. Now, let me just put this into perspective. <clears throat> the traditional theory of price is, of course, the supply-demand equilibrium theory. And with Karl Menger, this all changed, because Karl Menger says that instead of the one price, the market produces at least two prices. The higher offer price or ask price, in a way, it's unfortunate we have two words for that, but the British practices use the offer price and the American practices the ask price. But that's the one and it's exactly the same thing. And the bid price, here there's no difference. Both in America and Britain, they use the same word, bid price. Okay. So, 
when Menger arrived at the scene, this was a complete revolution of outlook. It's no longer equilibrium, it's disequilibrium. In fact, in fact, uh, this whole idea of the yield uh, of the demand and supply curve <coughs> crossing at one point that's the equilibrium price which means that for instance in the case of buying something it means that there is a unique price the equilibrium price, which Menger denies that it exists. And Menger says that it never ever happens that the buyer and the seller puts the same value on the merchandise. Because it has to be that the buyer values it more and the seller values it less because if they valued it both the same then the exchange wouldn't take place. So as a result we have that situation. Uh, two theories and they compete. And this is very interesting because uh, I think we all feel that Menger is absolutely right. And e even if you say, well, as a first approximation, let's use the, uh, the uh, supply-demand equilibrium theory. This is wrong. It, at best, it is a model. But when you use a model, you have to be conscious of the oversimplification which you introduce. So it's not a theory. It may be a good model, uh, a good way of illustrating what happens. So I'm not suggesting that we should completely dismiss it. But as a theory, it's inadequate. It's linear, when in the general case it could be highly nonlinear, and this would be catched, would be caught by Menger's disequilibrium theory. What the supply-demand equilibrium theory would not be able to catch. So this is really very important. Now, in spite of that that we have that superior instrument or tool, the disequilibrium theory of price formation. I think mainstream economics just doesn't touch it. I mean, they may introduce the terms and leave it there. Do nothing with it. Now, Austrian economics does. It carries 
the theory much further than just introducing the terms and leaving it there and going back to the supply-demand equilibrium theory. But I still feel that the Austrian school does not go far enough. So I took it upon myself to try to consciously develop the Menger idea, this equilibrium price formation. Now the basic idea is to discard or de-emphasize buying and selling that's under the supply-demand equilibrium theory. And here the disequilibrium theory would concentrate on what? Arbitrage. Arbitrage. This is a word. Arbitrage. And now Mises wrote this very thick volume and the wonderful volume. In a way, it's the Bible of the Austrians, Austrian economists. Human action. And look up the index and try to find arbitrage. It's not there. It's not there. But I have read the human action several times and I did come across the word arbitrage somewhere in the book which the compiler of the index missed. And probably it was a conscious choice because Mises refers in that particular place, he refers to a very marginal type of arbitrage. Certainly not something in the center which you want to study for its own sake. Because buying and selling uh, is, uh, is not the main form of human action. The main form of human action is arbitrage. And please, if you shift your outlook and look at price formation, and also various dynamic features of the economy and the financial system, you will agree with me that this shift of the point of view is a very, very great improvement. So, uh, I give you one example where nobody would think that arbitrage is involved and I extend the notion of arbitrage sufficiently that this will also be an ar arbitrage. Let's take a housewife who keeps buying a certain type of detergent for washing. Okay. And 
after a time, after a time, she will decide to switch the brand. What she has been using up to now, she discontinued buying and now starts buying the other brand. You wouldn't at the first blush say that this is arbitrage. But let's just think a little. You see? She, it's obvious she's buying the new brand. So that's the buying part of the arbitrage. What is the selling part? That she discontinues buying the old brand. If you look at it as selling, certainly in a sense it is selling, then you see that switching brands or switching customs on the part of the housewife, but on the part of anybody who switches for some reason. It's not important what reason you switch, but switching cigarette brand or switching uh, from uh, white bread to brown bread or any kind of that type. Or the producer who at the input end of, the, of his production line, he finds another input which is either cheaper or better quality or sometimes lower quality which would still fill the bill. Any kind of that type of switching for whatever reason, doesn't matter, is arbitrage and we shall formalize this by calling this type of arbitrage horizontal. So when the housewife is switching brand or the producer is switching brand, uh, we call horizontal arbitrage. And then we shall also use the word vertical arbitrage. And let's see what that is. I think before I, I do that, I would like to introduce further terms. But, but actually, I started out by giving you a general picture of what we do here. We are shifting from one price formation theory, the old one, which we discard, namely the supply-demand equilibrium theory, to the Menger type of analysis, which we characterize by calling it the disequilibrium uh, theory of price formation. So, we kind of get away from the terminology of buying and selling and talk about arbitrage. Okay. Now what is, how can we define arbitrage? Well, I'm 
defining arbitrage in the most general setting. Very often they say arbitrage has to be simultaneous buying and selling. And I, I drop this. It doesn't have to be simultaneous. Perhaps in most cases it is. Uh, well, uh, theoretically it can be simultaneous. In practice it never is simultaneous. But we are allowing some time period between buying and selling. We don't even insist that first you have to buy and then you have to sell. It is possible that first you sell and then after a week or so you buy. Okay. Now, also, also, what is that that you buy and what is that that you sell? In a more rigid definition, or under a more rigid definition of arbitrage, uh, you might insist that it has to be the same or very closely related good. And I loosen it up. I say no, not necessarily, because entrepreneur an entrepreneur would be looking at pairs and most of us would be blind to see that there is a possibility of arbitrage there. But the, the best uh, entrepreneur would see that. Okay. Also I wanted to introduce Spread and straddle. Okay. Now, spread is the difference between prices. Well, here, for the sake of simplicity, <clears throat> we can ignore the difference between offer and bid. We are just looking at two things, maybe. Uh, 